In Luke chapter 1, we see an introduction to the, what we would call the Christmas story. Of course, back then, it wasn't really known as the Christmas story. That wasn't, the term Christmas didn't come around for quite some time later. It was simply the birth of Jesus, the coming of the Messiah. The events that unfold in Luke chapters 1 and 2 and 3, this was simply a picture of the Messiah coming to the earth. It wasn't some Christmas celebration. It wasn't some event that um, God wanted us to have a, a yearly celebration on December 25th to remember. This is the coming of the Messiah, the promised one, the one who all the prophets and all the devout Jews were looking for for millennia. He had come. That's what this was. That's what this is. It's not Christmas as we have defined it. This is the Messiah, the Savior of the world, coming to the earth to establish God's kingdom. That's what this is about. It's not about family get-togethers and good food and hams and turkeys and presents and trees. That's never what this was about. Those things aren't wrong, and we celebrate with those things. And I think it's important for us to understand that we celebrate with those things, but we're celebrating something else, using those things. We're celebrating the coming of the Messiah, the Savior of the world. That's what we're here for. That's what, the, that's what this Christmas season is all about. To take time out of the year to deliberately celebrate this. This event that happened so many years ago. And let's look at in Luke chapter 1. Before we get there, I want to... you remember a man named Herod? The ruler during the time when Jesus was born. Herod, he was called the king of Jerusalem, king of Judea. He was the one who was ruling. The Roman, the Roman, <clears throat> the Romans established him as a ruler over most of Israel at this time to keep rule and order. And he was a very complicated individual, as many powerful people are, usually very complicated people. He's known, of course, for the time in Scripture where he slaughtered hundreds, if not thousands, of infants and toddlers because of his own lust for power. But we also can't forget that there was another side to Herod. Herod built cities for the Israelites. He completely revamped their infrastructure developed their economy, built roads and cities, and established, um, really, their economy. He built them up. He made Israel, as far as governments are concerned, and economies are concerned, made them better. And perhaps the most notable thing that Herod did for the people is that he built them a new temple. The temple, the thing that the Jews looked at, for the presence of God, to remember that God was among them, the temple. 
Herod built them one. He did a lot of good stuff for the Jews. It wasn't all bad, right? But then you, he's, all, he's remembered for slaughtering all these children. Like I said, he's a very complicated person. And Herod had a couple issues. When the wise men, or the magi, as the Bible describes them, came to Herod, they asked him, where's the, where's the king of the Jews that's to be born? <laughs> Do you, can you tell us where he is? And he's like, what? King of the Jews? I'm the king of the Jews. I'm the ruler. All of a sudden, this jealousy springs up in his heart. I mean, look at everything that he'd done for these people. He, he, if, if there was ever a ruler over the Jews, I mean, he was a good ruler. He did good for them. He devised this plan to kill all the children two years old and younger because he did not want some other king springing up and taking his place. No. One, he needed what was coming to him. He needed the respect of the people. He had worked so hard for them. There's no way that some kid is just going to take over his authority. Look at everything that he'd sacrificed for these people. He wanted the people to love him. He wanted the people to love him. He had worked for them. He had worked hard for them to gain their respect, their admiration, and their love. And now this Jesus, or this child, I guess he didn't really know his name at the time. This child is being talked about as this this new king that's supposed to rise up amongst the people and take over the kingship. And all of a sudden, everything that he desired, the respect, the love, all of that enraged him. But little did Herod know that this Jesus was coming precisely for problems such as these. And there's a little bit of Herod in each one of us. We work hard, And we want respect and admiration. We want to get what is owed to us when we work hard. We want people to love us. We want to be loved. Or at least to think of ourselves as being lovable. Somebody who's worthy of love. Somebody who's worthy of respect and admiration. Little did Herod know that when Jesus came, it was one because of this problem that we are going to get what's coming to us. We are going to get what, what is owed to us. And that's not a good thing. He came because of our sin problem that we will get everything that we worked for. All this life long, our, all of our sin, we are going to get the just condemnation for our works. And He also came for this love issue. God loves us. So He sent Jesus because He loves us. And the Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God loves you. So we see in the problems of Herod that if he only knew what this Messiah was all about, perhaps he would not have set out to destroy him. But then again, 
didn't seem like he was much of a humble person or a meek man. Perhaps he would not have accepted it if he knew. But today we're going to look at this, this grace of God that's come to save us from our human condition and to show forth His love to all nations. And let's start by looking in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 76. Now this, we're diving into a, um, a prophecy as we see in, in, in verse 67. This is Zacharias. You remember Zacharias? He is a, a, the father of a very important figure. You remember who that, whose father he is? John the Baptist. John the Baptist. You know what the name John means? It means God is gracious. And the scriptures tell us in, in Malachi, Malachi chapters 3 and 4 that Jesus was going to have a forerunner. He's going to have somebody going before him, preparing the way. And we see that when it was announced to John the Baptist's parents, that the, the angel that announced this told them, you're going to name this boy John. He had a name already picked out. It's going to be John. And back here, names mean something. They actually mean something. There's a purpose here. Just like the name of Jesus, it meant something. And John the Baptist, he wasn't really called John the Baptist until years later when he started his ministry of baptizing people. So this John, who is going to go and prepare the way for Jesus, is really going to show that what goes before us, but what goes before Jesus is God's grace. That God is gracious. God is not first and foremost an angry, bitter, resentful God. He specifically wanted people to know that his grace was preparing the way for the Messiah. It was his grace. And because He is gracious, He is going to save and He is going to heal you. Mary, in Luke chapter 1, had previously stated that He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy. God is our helper because He is gracious and because He is merciful. And He knows that we have a problem that we can't fix. If we could fix it, God would not have gone to such great lengths to fix it for us. I mean, have you ever thought about that? We all kind of live our everyday lives sometimes just thinking that we have things under control. We've got things taken care of. You know, I'm going to church. You know, I'm not doing all the wrong stuff that other people are doing. You know, I pray sometimes. I read my Bible sometimes. You know, that's kind of good enough. I've kind, of, I've kind of got things in a, in a, going in a good pattern. But if that was going to be enough, why in the world would God take on human flesh, suffer, die on a cross, if He knew that it was just good enough for us to just kind of be okay? Just be okay. Believe in God. Show up at the assembly from time to time. If that was enough, 
Why would God have done what he did? We have to conclude that that kind of thing is not enough. Even if you were the most devout Christian on the planet. And I'm not going to give lists of what that might look like because I'm not a legalist. I'm not going to tell you this is what it's like to be a devout Christian. Because that's not what matters. None of that is what matters. If that's what matters to us, how to be the demo, a devout Christian. If that's what matters to us, then we've missed the point completely of Christ's birth. If that's what matters to us, then why did Jesus die? If that's what matters to God, just you being a devout Christian, why did Jesus have to die? Why did God take on human flesh and die on the cross? That's a big deal. That's a huge deal. If walking with God was just this small deal, why would God have done a big deal in order to bring salvation to us? Because it's a big deal. Our human condition is a huge deal. It's a huge problem. And the forerunner for fixing the problem is one by who bears the name God is gracious. And that's a problem for human nature, human pride, grace. We don't like grace. Not really. Grace implies charity, and nobody likes to feel like they're a charity case. Like we need something that I can't provide for myself. And that's really kind of the nature of what grace is. God giving me something that I can't provide for myself. I don't like the sound of that in my human pride. We like to take care of things ourselves. We don't like it when we are unable, incapable. I mean, what's one of the first things that we start feeling when we're disabled and for some reason? Maybe we just had a surgery. <laughs> Or maybe we had an accident, and now we're severely disabled. Well, I just can't take care of myself. I hate the fact that everybody has to take care of me, because I can't take care of myself. That's one of the greatest aggravations of being in that kind of a situation. But we are all in that situation all the time, spiritually. And that's why grace is not something that's easy to accept, because of pride. We like to take care of ourselves. And that's why we rely on being a devout Christian. Going to church. Doing our duties. Making sure we don't do the wrong things and doing the right things. I'm not saying all that's bad. But we like to rely on that. Because we like to... Well, like Herod. We like to get what's coming to us. We like to earn. We like to feel respectable. Like we, had, we deserve respect and honor and love. Because of the things we've done. Because we're taking care of ourselves. We're not disabled. But spiritually speaking, we are very disabled. And Israel's history throughout Scripture has served as an allegory of the human condition. One of these allegorical summaries is that no matter how hard we try, we will never make ourselves full, complete, perfect, or acceptable in God's eyes. 
We on our own will always be insincere, self-righteous, idolaters, empty of spiritual beauty or power, and always destined to exile. That's what Israel's history can teach us about the human condition. And there's no way of escaping it. Not on our own. The human condition is not a source of encouragement on a cloudy day. If you're feeling discouraged or depressed, I would encourage you not to think on the human condition. (laughs) It's not going to help you feel better. I read earlier in Isaiah chapter 52, in the first few verses, it says, Awake, awake! Put on your strength, O Zion! Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for the uncircumcised and the unclean shall no longer come to you. Shake yourself from the dust, arise! Sit down, O Jerusalem, loose yourself from the bonds of your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you have sold yourselves for nothing. You have sold yourselves for nothing. That's what we've done. That's what the human condition has done in our position. But then he says, and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at first into Egypt to dwell there. Then the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Now therefore, what what have I here, says the Lord, that my people are taken away for nothing? Those who rule over them make them wail, says the Lord, and my name is blasphemed continually every day. This is what the human condition, the human nature, results in. This is where we take ourselves when we take life by the horns. We may be successful in terms of money, status, being a respectable citizen in our, in our city, in our nation. But he says, my people are taken away for nothing. Those who rule over them make them wail, says the Lord. My name is blasphemed continually every day. Then he goes and he shows us hope. Therefore, therefore, my people shall know my name. Out of that comes knowledge of God and his ways and his personhood that we have gone into captivity because of our stubbornness and our pride and our arrogance. What? Therefore, my people shall know my name because of that. Well, let's keep reading. Therefore, they shall know in that day that I am he who speaks. Behold, it is I. God is saying, I'm going to come onto the scene. I'm going to come in roaring, overcoming, Saving. Behold, it is I, the Savior. Verse 7, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. Your watchmen shall lift up their voices. With their voices they shall sing together, for they shall see eye to eye when the Lord brings back Zion. Break forth into joy. Sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted His people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has made bare His holy arm. In the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. 
And he goes on to say in verse 12, The Lord will go before you. The God of Israel will be your rear guard. Here we are seeing that because of the human condition, salvation had to come outside of us. If we were to be righteous and delivered from our sin, that deliverance has to come from outside of ourselves, outside of our spheres of influence. It has to be transcendent from us. And if you want to look back, you're probably still in Luke chapter 1. Let's read this thing that Zacharias, the father of John, says. And he says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest. Talking about John. The prophet of the highest. For you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. To give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. Through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. What was John the Baptist's job? The dawn is coming. That was his message. The morning light is coming. In verse 78, he says, The day spring. Is visiting the day spring. That's a, an old word for the dawn. That moment of the that moment when night becomes day. When the day springs forth over the mountaintops, and now there's light pushing away the darkness. And John the Baptist is going to give knowledge of salvation to his people. He's going to show them where it's coming from. Where is the salvation coming from? Where is this remission of sins coming from? How are these sins of these people going to be taken away? Because up until now, the sin, the weight, is still on the people's shoulders. They bear it. It doesn't matter how many sacrifices they make. The sin is still a problem for them. And John is going to go before Jesus, preparing the way, preparing the people to look for what's coming. The remission of your sins is coming. The tender mercy of our God is coming. The day spring is coming. He's visiting us. He's showing up at our doorstep. The one who pushes away the darkness. The one from whom only do we see light. Light. That makes it impossible for darkness to overcome. And he's going to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death. He's going to, fight, he's going to guide our feet into the way of peace. Isn't that what the angel said? Peace, goodwill to men. Isn't that what he said? Jesus is coming to bring peace. We like peace. We like to have peace with each other. We like to see peace in our nation. We like to see peace in the world. We hate it when we hear about wars, battles. We hate it when, there's a, when there is a, a fight between us and a loved one, a family member, a friend, a neighbor. We hate it when there's discord. We like peace. 
But what peace is he talking about? Is Jesus' ultimate job to bring peace between you and your, your parent or your child or your neighbor or your, your brother and sister in Christ? In a way, but first and foremost, the peace that Jesus brings is between us and God. Because that sin problem that we have in our human condition makes it impossible for us essentially to get along. Makes it impossible for us to be at peace together. To be one with each other. To be in one accord. That sin problem. We may feel okay because we don't feel the iron fist of God coming down upon us when we do something vain or carnal. So we feel okay. We forget that God is forbearing. He's patient. He endures with us so that His kindness might bring us to repentance. And for many, many years, the Lord God was forbearing the sins of His people because He knew that one day He's going to send them salvation so that they might look to the Savior and have their sins wiped away. Jesus was sent because we are in desperate need of His grace. Jesus did not take on flesh in order to give our mortal souls a booster shot to kind of get us going again. We were never going. He didn't come because He was lonely or curious of what was going on down here. He didn't come to fix a problem that was just kind of getting out of hand and kind of set us straight, and then He would go back to heaven and just kind of let things take their course again. Those are not the reasons Jesus came. Jesus came because you and I are in desperate need of His grace. In order to achieve something that we cannot take care of without Him. And grace, I mean, I've already mentioned grace before, but, and it can be described in many ways, but think about this. Grace, one of these descriptions is God's love giving us what we need, but can never get. God's love giving us what we need, but could never get. You know, for instance, this is a, a human way of understanding it. But you, you think about somebody, some small orphan in some African country where there is no water, no money, barely any food, and the food that is there is quickly consumed by those stronger, faster, more capable of getting to the food. And then you have this little orphan, most of which, most of the orphans, in this, in you know, one of these African countries, will ultimately perish. That orphan has no way of surviving without the help of somebody else. No way of surviving until this person filled with love hears of the plight of this orphan and says, "I'm going to come. I'm going to buy the plane ticket. 
I'm going to pay all of my expenses to go to this nation, to go find this orphan, to go pull him out of his spot where the water he's drinking is filthy, filled with germs. There's no food there, no way of him to, no way for him to sustain himself. I'm going to go, I'm going to pluck him up, and I'm going to feed him. I'm going to give him water. I'm going to clothe him. I'm going to give him everything he needs. Because unless I do that, that child is going to die. He is, in a, he is living in a barren wasteland where there is no sustenance, has no parents to take care of him, no brother, no sister. He's utterly by himself with no way of surviving. And without the love of somebody who is going to hear of his plight and go and take care of him, that child will die. That's a reality for many children today in the world. But that is the reality of every single one of us who has ever lived and existed on this planet. When you're talking spiritually. Spiritually speaking, we are destitute. Spiritually incapable of rising up Becoming something in the eyes of God that he thinks is worthy to save. Impossible. Can't happen. That's what the Bible tells us. For all have sinned and have come short of the glory of God. That's one of the most fundamental, rudimentary teachings of Scripture. That we often overlook in our daily lives. Why? Because we don't want to feel like a charity case. We don't want to feel utterly destitute. That's why we fill our lives with stuff, nice things, enjoyable things, because it makes us feel like we're not completely destitute. Even as a poor person, poor people can sometimes be some of the biggest spenders out there because spending money helps you not feel so poor (laughs) because you don't like feeling poor. So what are you going to do? You're going to go spend money that you don't have. No way of paying it. But for all the time, it makes you not feel so poor. We don't like to think about grace, really, and all of its implications. Because in order to think about grace truly, it means we have to think about the fact that we're poor. But unless we are willing to think about the fact that we are poor and destitute, we will never be able to see the light. John the Baptist is coming to came to show us that the light is coming. It's coming. Just look. In Isaiah chapter 9, if you want to turn there real quick, we're going to look here at an image, a prophetic image of the Messiah. In Isaiah chapter 9, he says... The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden. In the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. I want to stop there for a second. So we see here a theme of light. We see a theme of of, uh, 
the end of slavery. And he references in in verse 4, as in the days of Midian. You remember what happened in the days of Midian, when Midian was the great oppressor of people. There was a judge in those days by the name of Gideon. You remember Gideon? Gideon was not a very impressive person. He was, he was cowardly, he was afraid, and you know what? If I was Gideon, I probably would be too. Because the Midianites were powerful people. Nobody could really do anything about their situation. They couldn't, Israel wasn't going to get out from under their rule for nothing. But do you remember how Israel overcame Midian? Was it with a strong arm? Was it with great power and might and tens of thousands of soldiers? It was with 300 people. And how did they initiate the battle against the Midianites? You remember? They were up on a hill that overlooked the tens of thousands of soldiers from the Midianites. And what were they holding? They were holding torches of light. And when the time was right, they crashed the pots that were, they were holding over the torches to keep the light from shining. And when the time was right, they crashed those pots, the light shone, and the Midianites started going crazy. They started scattering. They started killing each other because they were confused. They didn't know what was going on. 300 people with light destroyed an entire army that was much stronger than them. And this, is a prof- this, this battle of Gideon and the Midianites is prophetic of the Messiah. He's the day spring. He's the, the dawning light that when He comes, when you see the light, you know salvation is coming. Salvation is here. The darkness must flee when the light comes. That's the nature of things. When light shines, darkness has to go. There's no other way about it. And he says, the people who walked in darkness, that's all of us. We all walk in darkness, but we have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them, a light has shined. And that's exactly what happened that first day when Jesus was born, the light started to shine. I mean, wasn't it a light that brought the three magi to him in the first place? And it is the same, spiritually speaking, that if we're to come to God, to come to His salvation, we must go to the light. We must follow the light. Jesus is that light. And that's why we talk about how salvation has dawned. Because that salvation is found in Jesus Christ. And in Luke chapter 2, if you want to look there briefly, and we'll be done here shortly. Luke chapter 2, I just want to read this. We're not going to dwell on this for very long. Luke chapter 2, we see a man in verse 25. We We don't know much about this man. His name is Simeon. He was an older man. The Bible says in verse 25, he was just and devout and he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. 
And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And God had revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Christ meaning Messiah. So he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up, the Simeon took him up in his arms and blessed God, said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at the things which were spoken of him. Imagine if somebody said that about your child. Maybe you had a newborn at some point. And you're holding that baby and somebody comes and talks like eloquently like this to you about your child. Now Mary and Joseph knew there was something special about this child, but I'm not sure they truly grasped the, the, the depth of what was going on here. But here we see Simeon saying that he is a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. That this is going throughout the whole world. Because we can't forget that you and I, unless I don't know you well enough, are Gentiles. Jesus came as a Jew to the Jews to, under, the, under the prophecies given to the Jews. Because the Jews had broken the Jewish law. But he didn't just come for the Jews, he came for the whole world. He is salvation to all men, all women, everywhere. Isaiah chapter 62, verses 10 through 12 says, Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, take out the stones, lift up a banner for the peoples. See, right now it's the proclamation of, we're making a way here. We're preparing a path. Indeed, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the world, say to the daughter of Zion, surely your salvation is coming. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. And they shall call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. If you are despised, if you've done something that, and somebody despises you for it, maybe you've committed some great, great evil and your family rejects you and despises you, does your, does your family seek you out? No. They reject you. They, they do whatever they can do to stay away from you. And sometimes we feel like that about us and God. I am just so messed up. I am so far gone. The Jews are the epitome of a people who are far gone. And we are all that way, spiritually speaking. Perhaps we've been in a situation like that very, very literally in our families. But we must see how the Lord sees us and why exactly Christmas happened. In this verse 12, and we're going we're gonna to end our discussion here today with this verse 12. This is really, you can see the heartthrob of why God did what he did in sending Jesus to be a human being so that he could die for our sins. He wants to make, he says, and they shall call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. 
You shall be called sought out and not forsaken. And this is split into two, two parts. They shall call him the holy people. Okay, so a, a sinful people is not a holy people. A sinful people is a, a people full of blemish and filth. That's not holy. But the Bible is saying here, they shall be called a holy people, a perfect people, a clean people. Do you feel clean? Have you felt clean as far as how you think that you could approach God, your approachableness? Do you feel clean? Or do you feel like, man, I'm weak and I'm miserable? The Bible says you are called a holy people, clean. The redeemed of the Lord. So you've been made clean and now you're redeemed. The idea behind redeemed is you're, you're taken out of slavery. You were a slave and, so, and somebody came and bought you and set you free. That's what the word redeemed usually refers to in the scriptures. You are no longer a slave to sin. You are holy. You are clean. You are no longer a slave to sin. It is not going to hold you down any longer in Christ Jesus, in the salvation that He has brought to us by faith. You are not pressed down and oppressed by a slave master any longer. Because you are holy, you are redeemed. And then we see here, the second portion, how did this happen? How did we become holy? How did we become redeemed? Because you, you shall be called sought out. A city not forsaken. Then this is the action happening when Jesus came was born. This was God seeking you out. If the Lord had not sought us out, we could never be found. Right? Isn't that kind of logical? We could never be found if He never sought us out. And we are not so far gone. And it's exactly because we're far gone that God sought us out. Because He wants to save you. He wants to fill you with His favor and His love. You shall be called sought out. Don't you like that? I mean, we think about that in a relationship where usually this is how a relationship goes. There's a woman and a man... And a man pursues a relationship with the woman. And because that man pursues that woman, eventually they end up in a relationship. And they fall in love. They they get married and they have a family. Because there was a time where there was pursuit. Where one went after the other to go and get them. Because they loved them. And they wanted that person. And God is initiating a type of romance with us. He's pursuing you because He wants you. He loves you. He cherishes you. We do a lot of running away, but He is a seeker and a finder, a pursuer, somebody who is steadfast. When He wants you, He's going to come and get you. He does not give up because you're too fast. (laughs) You're too fast. God just can't keep up with you and you're sinning. God's grace just wasn't good enough. No, when God comes after you, He comes after you because He's going to get you. And save you. 
And he says, you're a city not forsaken. You are not forgotten by God. You are not forsaken by Him because of your sin. No, because of your sin, He came and got you. Because your sin made it impossible for you to come to Him. God knows that if we're going to be with God, He has to come and do the work for us. If He were to forsake you, then you are forsaken. There's no way for you to get His attention. Going back to the relationship thing, back in high school, there were, the, there were all these statements about, no, you're too good for him. Or, no, you're too good for her. You can never be together. You're too good. Or perhaps you felt like that about your... I felt like that about Kristen. She's too good for me. <laughs> What's the point? Sometimes we feel like that with God. What's the point? I can never achieve that. And that's the whole point. You can't achieve it. But since God has not forsaken you, there is hope for you. There is hope for you. Because He is not a God who forsakes you. There may be a time of dryness, but only because you need to get thirsty. But God has not forsaken you. That is unbiblical. There was a time in the Scriptures where God said, I'm, I'm walking away from you. But ultimately we see that this was because He was teaching the people something. He was getting them thirsty, getting them hungry, getting them prepared to receive the Messiah when He came. To to get them to the point where they recognize they're incapable of establishing establishing and keeping a relationship with God. This goes back to that human condition. All we can do is run. All we can do is sin. All we can do is forsake. But all God does is come after, pursue, forgive, redeem. That's the kind of God He is. And that's the action of what's going on when Jesus was born that night in a stable, laid in a manger. That was God initiating pursuit to redeem His people, to redeem you, to save you, to do something for you that you could not do for yourself, to give you His grace. Because He's showing you His favor. He's giving you His grace. And that's what the birth of Jesus is. God showing His grace to you, initiating something that you could never initiate, your salvation. Giving a way for you to be redeemed, wiped, have your sins wiped out, cleansed, when Jesus fulfilled the will of God for Him on the earth and dying on that cross. So that we could be saved from our sins. That was all initiated in that birthday of Jesus many, many years ago. He was looking upon us and saying, I'm going to seek you out. I'm not going to forsake you. Forsaken no longer. No, I'm coming to get you. Because it's time. Because I love my people and I'm going to come and I'm going to save them. So as we think about Christmas this year, let's think about it in, not in terms of just you know, celebrating life and celebrating family and love. Let's celebrate God's grace. When we wake up on Christmas morning, you know, the Bible says His mercies are new every morning. Well, let's at least think about that fact on Christmas morning. And we think, this is the morning that we celebrate your mercy and your grace. That you came and sought me out 
that you came because of your great love to come and get me, to come and come do something that I could never do for myself. And spend the day in thankfulness, remembering the goodness and the mercy of God. And that's, I mean, that's really, if you want to be merry on Merry Christmas, let's be merry in remembering. I mean, I don't want to be cliche, but the greatest gift ever given to humanity. I mean, we've we've heard that many times before, but it's true. Just because it's been, just because it's kind of cliche, doesn't mean it's not true. That Jesus is the greatest gift that man could ever have. He was not wrapped in wrapping paper. He was wrapped in swaddling clothes. He was not laid under a tree. He was laid under a cow, <laughs> essentially, in a manger. Humblest of means. And he did all of this because he's, God was pursuing you. God was coming after you to save you and to set you free from the bond of your sin. So let's walk in thankfulness as we approach Christmas this year. And we must do this all year long. But especially here. Let's have this, you know, we've, we sang, when was that? Was that this morning? That was this morning. Revive us again, right? That was this morning in Sunday school. Maybe, maybe this can be a time where God revives us again, revives this passion within us to seek the one who sought me out first so that I could walk in his way. Now it's possible to please God because the Bible says without faith it's impossible to please God. Now we can actually please God because we're not doing it because we're trying to erase our human condition. God already did that. God did that already. Put your faith in him. And because of your faith in him, go out and please God. You're free to do it. You're set free from the bonds of sin that were weighing you down. So let's thank God for that this Christmas, for initiating our salvation that many years ago. Lord, I thank you for your great gift to us. And I pray that your spirit would shine the light within our spirit so we might see the Jesus, the day spring, who does not dwell in the darkness, but the one who dispels the darkness, so we might see your truth. And I pray that you would forgive us, help us to not walk in the ways of darkness, but in the ways of light, for the sake of the name of the one who came to seek and to save us when we were lost. In Jesus' name, amen.